Welcome to episode three of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Sharman. I'm a coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. And this episode, we're talking to Cara Goucher, who needs little introduction. She's a two-time Olympian and a world championship silver medalist at the 10,000 meters. She's also an advocate for positive change in our sport, especially related to anti-doping and empowering female athletes. This show delves into what the Clean Sport Collective is and Cara's involvement with that, including the podcast they create, how anti-doping works and why it's important. Uh, we discuss her involvement with the Nike Oregon Project as well and what it's like going to the Olympics, plus how the one-year delay to Tokyo will affect athletes. Then we also look into trails and ultras, which she's uh, tried out within the last year, particularly doing a 50K last November. So let's get into it. Welcome and thanks for being on the show, Cara. Um, I think I met you for the first time just within the last year, plus I was on your Clean Sport podcast um, fairly recently as well. So um, we also have a common sponsor, Altra, and that's why we've been in a couple of events together. Uh, you also host the Clean Sport Collective podcast, uh, as well as being obviously an, an amazingly accomplished athlete. So um, would you mind just introducing yourself a little bit, just a, a couple of the highlights? There's obviously too many to go into too much detail. Yeah, sure. Um, I am a two-time Olympian. I'm a um, world championship silver medalist. I podiumed in a couple of major marathons. Um, I still run a lot. I'm not nearly as fast as I used to be. I like to dabble in all sorts of stuff now. I'm officially an ultra marathoner because I did the North Face 50K last year. And I'm a mom and a wife. That's basically me in a nutshell. Yeah, you, you've done every distance from the shorter stuff on the track, uh, or what I think of a short distance, but obviously uh, the normal thinking is more middle distance, and then going up to the marathon professionally, and then dabbling as well in ultras now. So um, have you officially retired from, from all competition, would you say, or are you still maybe going to dabble a little bit in, in some of the less competitive stuff, such as ultras? Yeah, I think I'll never officially retire. I mean, my days of trying to make a team and represent the U.S. are those are past me, but I don't know. I still think about running a marathon. I still think about trying to get back on the t track and running a 10K. I definitely think about trying to run a 50 miler. So I don't know. I'm sure I'll lace up again, you know, numerous more times throughout my life, but with less intensity for sure than I used to used to do it. No, glad to hear that. And, and obviously running is something you do for life rather than just uh, when you can compete. And I think that's one of the beauties of the sport. So one of the, the main things that you've been involved in, particularly in recent years, is being a very vocal advocate for uh, anti-doping and for keeping the sport clean, especially with the kind of experiences that we'll talk a bit more that you've had in the past. So what is the Clean Sport Collective and why was that created? Yeah, the Clean Sport Collective, it launched in the fall of 2016. And at the time, I wasn't really a part of it. Um, one of my really close friends and my agent, Shanna Burnett, her husband, and two other people, one of them, the CEO of Noon Hydration, um, had decided to start something. They were tired of people saying like, what can I do? I want to support clean athletes. So they decided to start this collective where you could take a pledge. Um, athletes could take a pledge. Sponsors could take a pledge race directors could take a pledge and fans could take a pledge to compete clean and to support clean athletes. And so it kind of blew up at first. It got a lot of attention, thousands of people signed, and then it sort of 
you know, hung there. Um, and in 2019, Shanna and I went to an anti-doping conference in London. And while we were there, they kept talking about, you know, the importance of the athlete voice, yet we don't really hear from the athletes. So we came back from London pretty fired up and we said, all right, the Clean Sport Collective, we're going to give it more life and we're going to start highlighting clean athletes and talk to them. And so, yeah, the podcast has only been around a year and you were gracious enough to come on before you ran Western State. So it's been really fun and exciting and rewarding to just talk to athletes who are passionate about clean sport. And one of the key things there is that the athletes are pledging not just to be clean, but also if they fail a drug test to not compete again. So I think that that's a key part of it there, that ability to actually put some meat behind the bones of, of just a concept rather than just saying, oh, I'll be clean, but there's no downside to it. So talking about lifetime bans, that is not something that exists typically, but most things are more of a slap on a wrist for a couple of years of not being able to compete. So what are your thoughts about the degree of punishment there is at the moment within the sport for being caught doping? Um, you know, it's, it's not enough right now. I think we've moved to four year bans now. Um, you can get a four year ban on a first time offense. Uh, but again, that keeps you out from one cycle. It doesn't keep you out forever. It doesn't hold accountable the people that helped you dope. So I feel like the whole system sort of needs a revamp. I obviously am for lifetime bans. I know that they're very difficult to prove and it becomes sort of like who has the best lawyer. Um, but I'm for lifetime bans because I feel like in any other thing in life, if you cheated, knowingly cheated, you, you just don't get to come back. I'm not saying you're a horrible human or you can't have a life, but you know what? You just don't get to compete anymore at the highest level. You, you know, racing at the highest level is not your right. It's a privilege and you agree to a set of rules. You break those rules. You don't get to come back anymore. That's how I feel. I feel like right now the system is not, there's not enough liability to really deter people. People think, well, you know, I get caught, I serve a two, four year ban and I'm back at it. So it's the risk reward is still not enough at this point. And in terms of the risk, do you think there's actually much likelihood of someone being caught? So for example, we've had someone like Christian Coleman, who world's best sprinter, but he has been missing tests. And then he complains that it's their fault for not being able to find him, even though there's a, a very set up procedure to have one hour a day that you let them know where you'll be. So you'll be available for testing. And it's relatively easy to update that with, within plenty of time. So do you feel like there's actually much chance of catching people who are doping or can they get around it that way with just missing tests if they know they'd fail it and, and maybe getting less of a ban that way than if they were caught with a, with stuff in their blood? Yeah, well, the Coleman case, of course, is super um, fresh, although we had this last year where he missed three tests in a 12-month period and was able to get off on a technicality, and now he's facing missing the Olympics next year. Um, I just want to say for the listeners, the whereabouts system is really easy. You, they can show up whenever, but it is not a missed test unless it's during your hour that you choose. So for instance, when I was an elite and I was in the, in the testing pool, my hour was from 6am to 7am because I knew I would be home. I wouldn't have left for training yet. So to, to not be home or be where you are in your chosen hour is crazy to me. And also you can literally text them as you're walking out the door and say, change of plans, decided to train early today, I'll be at the track. So it's not like, it's very, I don't think it's that, it's not that hard to keep up with your whereabouts. I don't, I'm, it's been crazy to see um, some athletes have difficulty with it. But I, I think 
the testing is important because especially now with the biological passport, you know, we, we don't often, I mean, we do, but we more often see people face bans because of inaccuracies in their biological passport, which is their tests accumulated over time and being able to compare their values. An actual positive test, it doesn't happen that often, but we still need it because otherwise people will just, it's just a free-for-all, right? You can just do whatever you want. I do think that um, moving forward, it needs to be a more investigative approach. I mean, that's what I would like to see is more investigations into groups, into the doctors that they work with, um, into the therapists that they work with. Um, but I do think that we still will always have to have a whereabouts system where athletes are accountable for where they are and where they're available to be tested. And do you think that at the moment most dopers get caught or do you think there's a whole load of people who slip through um, Obviously, we find a lot of people who years after they get medals or years after they were outside the medals then get upgraded to medals, um, such as yourself with the 2007 World Championship 10,000 meters where you were, I believe, upgraded from a bronze to a silver after someone years later tested positive. So do you think it's actually catching most of that at the time? And how important is it that you find out on the day whether you're third or fourth, particularly on the podium or not on the podium for things like your career? I do not think we're catching most of the people. Um, there was a research study that I was a part of. I think it was in 2009 or 2011. I can't remember, but we filled out these forms at the world championships about, it was totally confidential. Had you ever doped, um, blah, blah, blah. And I can't remember the figures, but it's estimated of something like 60 to 70% of the athletes had doped. Yet only one to 2% of athletes get caught per year. So clearly we are not catching everyone who is doping. Um, and then as far as how important it is that it happens quickly. I mean, I think about my situation in 2007, I landed on the podium at the world championships. I won bronze and that it changed my life. I went from struggling to get into races to being able to race anywhere I wanted. I never got an appearance fee before I won that bronze medal. Then everywhere I went, I got an appearance fee. It changed my life dramatically. And, you know, 10 years later, I'm upgraded to silver. It doesn't change my life at that point. But I think about someone like Joe Pavey from Great Britain, who was fourth place. Um, and her whole career has been defined, you know, as this near miss. When instead, she should have had that moment. She should have had all of the opportunity pour in that I had, the appearance fees, the, you know, it's just really sad that 10 years later, she's still racing, but not at the, not at the same level, obviously. And it doesn't do it for her now. Um, that moment was robbed from her and financially was robbed from her. And just the level of respect that she should have had for the rest of her career while she was still competing, she didn't get to have that. So I think, I do think it's important that we retest samples because once the 10 year window goes by, it's, it's done. Um, we have a 10 year statute of limitations in athletics, but, and I think it's important that we test six to eight years out and try to right any wrongs that we can, but we're still not, you know, the athletes still aren't getting that moment and they're still not getting the financial gain and they're still not getting the opportunity. So we need to close that window down. It, it shouldn't be taking 10 years to right a wrong. And how long did it take um, or what was it like, I should say, when you get you, you actually got your silver? Was there any kind of fanfare or did it just kind of arrive in the mail? 
Yeah. So I, I, you know, in 2015, I found out that they had retested our samples and that the silver medalist tested positive for Stanzanol, but that they were, she was fighting it and they were going to be testing her B sample. Then I found out in 2017 that her B sample had come back negative and she wasn't fighting it and she was serving a ban. Then um, later in 2017, in 2017, about 10 days before the world championships, Joe Pavey and I found out that if we could get ourselves to London, we would be able to stand on our proper place on the award stand. So we went um, and they, but they didn't have medals for us, but we went and our children were there who weren't born when we originally ran this race um, 10 years earlier. And it was, it was nice. I mean, it was, I, we both appreciate it very much, but then I didn't get the medal until um, this year in March, right as COVID hit. So it just came in the mail. So earlier in the day, I had gotten flowers from USATF and it, and it said something like, I'm, we're sorry this took so long. And so I just said to my husband, I was like, I think my medal is coming today. And yeah, it just came in the mail and I wasn't able to celebrate because we were all, you know, that was the beginning of COVID and everyone was taking it quite seriously at that point. So it, it was really weird. And um I'm relieved to have it. I'm relieved to sort of close that chapter. But again, I come at it from a perspective of someone who still had a lot of gain from winning a medal and standing on the podium. And I think, what about the people who were fourth, you know, or who were second and should have been first? Those are the people that I really, really feel for because it still did change my life in a powerful way. And even though, yeah, I mean, we've tallied it up. It's close to a half million dollars I lost out on moving forward but I still got so much from it. Um, and I still just, but I just really feel bad for the people who should have been on number one and the people who never got to stand on the podium at all. That's a pretty significant number. The half a million you're saying just between the difference of a third and a second, a second to a first is even bigger. A fourth to a third, as you said, is also huge. So it does make or break careers. So this is clearly a, a super important thing to be able to work out as quickly as possible. And, and why did it take so long? Is it because the types of tests they were doing, they they couldn't test for whatever she failed for originally, but then years later, they did have a test for it? So they had a test for Stanzanol, but she had such small values that in 2000, so we got tested right after our race in 2007 and all of the tests came back clean. Um, so then they retested them eight years later and with better testing, they could detect smaller amounts. So Stanzanol is not a natural substance in your body. Obviously it's a steroid. So it was there the whole time, but we just didn't have the capability to test at that small of a level in 2007. And then in 2015, we did. So it's just, it's all kind of crazy. You know, it's, it's, it's the right thing to do to go back and retest into a ward. But I think we need to think more long-term of what does it do for people who lost out on so much and is just handing them a medal 10 years later. Is that good enough? I don't think it is. And, and going to an even higher level question here about why doping is wrong. I think a lot of people, they see it particularly in the, the bigger money sports where they're quite happy as spectators to see a stronger, more powerful athlete, whether it's in the NFL, whether it's basketball, baseball, people like to see that and they don't necessarily care about how they got there or about the person's health. So why is it important that doping is banned and that it's strictly enforced and that people get caught? 
Well, just like you said, there are health consequences. You know, we don't know what all this stuff does to your body. But what I really think about is I think about the youth. And I think, you know, we've seen this in cycling where it's it's just sort of said, well, you have to, you have to dope. And I just think, what message are we sending to the next generation that you have to cheat, you have to go against your principle and put your body in harm, your life on the line to participate in a sport. I mean, it's just crazy. And the fans are partly accountable. The fans want to turn their head the other way and they want to just enjoy the sports and not think about it. But because they're willing to do that, it enables the system to perpetuate where athletes, you know, take steroids to perform in the NFL or take drugs to perform in track and field. And so, you know, like the fans want to see records and they want to see super strong athletes and it starts to take away from something that's humanly possible. So the fans are also partially responsible for wanting to see just healthy, clean people. Let's see what humans are capable of, not humans with the best doctors or the best drugs or the athletes that are willing to take the most risk with their health. I think that culture side of it is so important now. And also that's a really big part of being able to enforce it. If you can't guarantee that the tests will definitely catch people, you've got to have a culture that encourages everyone to do that and to not think of doping as okay. As you mentioned with cycling, people basically said, well, I have to dope because everyone else is doping, so it's not really cheating. And that became the mentality that meant that it was so prevalent uh, within the, the endurance cycling world. Do you think it's ever been that bad in running? And do you think that there's a lot of people who use that justification to say, I can only compete if I dope, so I'm just leveling the playing field rather than cheating? I mean, I think a lot of people use that excuse. I think that's, it takes years for some people, but that's the conclusion they come to is that I'm just as good as them and I'm gonna level the playing field. Although science says it doesn't actually level the playing field. Everyone responds to drugs in different ways. Some people are born with lower hermatocrit, so they get a much bigger boost from EPO. Some people naturally have higher hermatocrit, so they take EPO and they don't get the gain someone else does. Same with testosterone, HGH, you name it. So it doesn't actually level the playing field. It just sort of comes down to who is willing to take the most risk. I think people will justify it in lots of different ways, but I think at the end of the day, it's bogus. You know what? Not everybody in cycling is doing drugs but we don't know who they are because they are left behind. And that's super depressing. Like there are people that we should be highlighting that we should be listening to and they chose to not dope. And because of that, we don't know who they are. They don't get the fame. They don't get the fortune. They don't get the opportunity. And they're the people that should be getting it. So like you said, it is a culture shift. Uh, We all want this together. We want to see sport be what it's supposed to be, which is, athletes competing against each other to see who is the best athlete on that day. And that's something of beauty when it's all chemically enhanced and we don't know what we're watching. That's no longer beautiful to me. I completely agree. It's so important both to see people doing the best they possibly can and in a healthy way for them. So they're not having to sacrifice their health because of these drugs, but also because we want kids to see it. We want other people in, in society to look to athletes as role models. We don't want to look at them and go, oh, well, that's a whole bunch of cheats and who can cheat the most does best. But that there's at least some degree of looking up to and wanting to be like those athletes. And so just not cheating is a pretty core principle within that. And as you said as well, that it's not necessarily that it does level the playing field. It may be, for example, at Lance Armstrong, if everyone had been on on zero drugs and and completely 
within the rules, he may not have been the best then. It may just be he responded better to drugs than other people, and that's what pushed him to the top. And therefore, as you say, putting people who don't use drugs or people who don't respond to the drugs as well, even changing the ordering of them. So that obviously is, is a very complex thing to be able to work out. And it, the simple rule is if no one's doping, then at least it is a level playing field. But there's also certain things that are allowed that are deemed to not be uh, against the rules and then other things which are not. So caffeine, for example, is a known performance enhancer, but it's allowed partly because it's culturally used frequently and partly because the amount it helps uh, is deemed to be small enough. So what do you think about the fact that there is some degree an arbitrary line decided of this is allowed or this isn't allowed and how could that be, I'm not sure if improved is the right way of thinking about it, but the fact that it is arbitrary, how does that make you think about it, the whole doping and anti-doping? Yeah, I mean, I I understand, you know, people will say, well, Advil is allowed and people will take anti-inflammatories to hide their pain or caffeine is allowed and people will take caffeine to enhance their performance or I, taking iron supplements is allowed and people take that to help keep their stores up. So it does become kind of murky, right? Like you can't just have... I mean, I like to think of it as very black and white as far as just this is what the rules say. This is what's on the list. I'm not going to do it. Um, but it does become a little murky when you think about these other things. Also, some prescription drugs may help you run better. But um, and if you have a but you're there, it's allowed if you have a doctor's prescription. So it does become a little bit murky. I, I would just like to see more transparency with everything. Um, when something is added to the list, when something is taken off, why is it added? Why is it taken off? I think one of the things that's hard for athletes and people involved in the sport is that it's also secretive. Like we don't really even know who they're retesting when they retest samples, you know, like I don't actually know that my sample from 07 was retested. And so the lack of transparency is a problem for everybody, I think. And I think things that are on the list, you know, there should be a clear reason why it's on, whether it's, and we've seen this with meldonium, like they just saw an uptick of athletes taking it at championships. It wasn't banned. They saw tons and tons of athletes start to take it, which they were obviously hoping it was going to give them some benefit. So then they banned it. And that became sort of a nightmare situation because you had all these different cases and it was in your, it, you know, had a long half-life and it was in people's systems long. But so that's that was like the case where I felt like, okay, we really need to have more transparency on why things are put on the list. And if you say and explain, hey, we've seen this at the championships and we've seen a few athletes taking it and then a few hundred athletes taking it a year later, well, that makes sense that maybe people are using this for gain. Um, but there certainly should be you know, some research behind if it does give you a benefit and then show us the research that people are trying to abuse it. And then I think people are more understanding of why it's on the list. And how much of a benefit is it possible to get from, let's say, the, the perfect mix of drugs for you personally? Is, are we talking just a couple of percentage uh, points of improvement typically, or, or is it more than that? Oh, no. I mean, I think EPO alone, I believe, is like a three to four percent advantage. Think of that over an endurance event. You know, in a marathon, you're talking many minutes. So that's the difference between being a pretty good marathoner and being, you know, a medalist at the Olympics. So that's and that's just one thing you could be doing, right? You could be doing that and so many other things. And so I just think it's a problem. And I just 
I, you know, it's controversial. A lot of people think you should have to list all of your supplements. So when you get drug tested, you have to list everything you're taking. Um, some people think you should have to list that. Um, maybe that would discourage people from taking certain things. But of course, then that becomes like difficulty because that's someone's personal private medical information. But it's it's a basically it's a big problem because the gains you can get if you can microdose and get away with this stuff, the gains are huge. And it literally will take someone that's talented and is an also ran and take them into unbeatable. Yeah. And when it is such tiny margins, think about the hundred meters where it could be one hundredth of a second between a gold and a silver or a couple of hundredths of a second between first and not being on the podium, uh, which is life changing, especially in an Olympics or a world championship. So if we're talking about gains that can be several percentage points, um, that is, as you said, the difference between being even in the Olympic final and not being in the Olympic final, which yes. is, is mind blowingly important. So. Just to switch uh, a direction a little bit, um, you were part of the Nike Origin project. Um, there's been a lot of controversy around this in the past. So um, how long were you a member of that? And what was it like working with those coaches in Oregon? Um, I joined, the, my husband and I joined the Oregon project on Halloween in 2004. Um, and then my husband left the Oregon project, I want to say before our son was born. Um, and then I left the Oregon project in the fall of 2011, right after the world championships. So I was there technically on the team for nearly seven years and it was, a, it was like a lifetime ago, but it was a lifetime experience. When I first got there, it was wonderful and, um, you know, I had a hard time staying healthy and it was unlimited resources to help you stay healthy, to see whatever therapist you needed, to get in to see doctors, MRIs, anything like that. You just would get it that day and you could find out right away how severely injured you are. If you needed surgery, you could get it the next day. I mean, it was, it was incredible. The resources were incredible. Um, but the culture of the team started to shift um, in 08 and certainly into 09. I was gone in 2010 having my son. And when I came back in 2011, the cult, it was like unrecognizable how, um, I don't know what the right word is, but just how high the, the measurement of success was. I mean, we went from being like really hopeful and, you know, our goal was to make teams and to hopefully, you know, place top 10 to an 11, like you had to medal. And, it, that to me was just totally unrealistic, especially in, in I mean, you know, you're an endurance athlete, like you, you cannot predict what's going to happen. You can put yourself in the best situation possible, train as best you can, but then a lot of it's up to luck and what your other competitors do. And a lot of it is the stars have to align for you to have the performance that's memorable. Um, and so it just became just very cutthroat. And I started to see things that made me very uncomfortable that I felt like we're crossing a line that we're no longer gray area, but definitely crossing a line and breaking anti-doping rules. And so, uh, yeah, I finally left at the end of 2011. And could you give us an example of, of some of the things that you saw that were unethical there? Yeah. I mean, I had a teammate that would fake dehydration. Um, with my coach would help him fake dehydration so that he could get, um, 
he could get uh, IVs before championship races, which that's against the rules. Like this is part of the problem is that people say, well, that's not that big of a rule to break, but it is You know what I mean? like, that's a rule. You actually can't get an IV unless you have a therapeutic use exemption from a doctor. And so he would fake that he was dehydrated so he could get like this super hydration rate before races, things like that, you know, abusing thyroid medications, um, abusing inhalers, and just things that just made me really uncomfortable. And I just felt like, at, you know, at first you, you're so close with these people. I mean, this was my family. I traveled with them all around the world. I spent months with them on the road and I love them so much. I was so close with them. And at first you sort of excuse away things that you see. But I think having that year away when I was pregnant and coming back, it was so glaring that rules were being circumvented that I, I just couldn't make up and, you know, I couldn't make up an excuse anymore. It was just obvious that, that they were going against the rules. So that win at all cost mentality can obviously lead to justifying almost anything. So do you think though, most of it was trying to go, they're, they're going up to the absolute boundary of what could technically be allowed. So going to the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law, such as the using, you're allowed to use TUEs, the therapeutic use exemptions. So faking reasons to use them, that would be an example there of technically allowed, but obviously not the spirit of it where it's meant to be used just where the person medically needs it. Or, or did it go even beyond that spirit, that, that uh, letter of the law to just, this is clearly not allowed and not how it's intended at all. And if it was seen uh, and, and witnessed by the anti-doping authorities, it would definitely be a ban. Yeah, I believe that it started with that right to that edge, right? Like you're going to, we're going to get this, infusion under the limit or whatever it might be, or I'm going to get you a TUE for this. But then it definitely crossed the line where you were just getting an IV. There was no TUE written up for it. You're just getting it, you know, um, or you were getting infusions. I mean, I wasn't there for the L-carnitine infusions, but I think it's pretty clear in the documentation that they were well over the legal limit because they were taking hours to get these infusions. Um, and yeah, I think like some of the inhaler stuff and some of the thyroid medication, technically, maybe that wasn't illegal. But I do think some of these infusion stuff and potentially stuff with testosterone cream um, is clear cut over the line. And could you talk a little bit about what it's like as an athlete in that position, especially the power dynamics? So you're with this group for a long time. Things start off well. And then suddenly it starts getting into murky and, and outright wrong uh, areas. But it's also the way you're making your living. Um, you've got people above you, the coaches, the, um, the people in charge who are saying, this is what we're doing. It's okay. What is that like from your perspective? And do you think that that's especially dangerous for an even younger athlete who hasn't yet achieved enough to, uh, to get a, a medal in a, in a major championship? Yeah, it's so difficult. And I really worry about the younger athletes. Um, you, you, there's nowhere really to go. You know, these people are like gods in the sport. You are sponsored by some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, where are you going to go? Are you going to go into the CEO of your sponsor's office and say, I'm worried that anti-doping 
rules are being broken in my group. I mean, who are, where are you going to go with it? Like there's nowhere to go everywhere you go. There is a position of power. And like you were talking about earlier with culture, I think that's one of the things I would love to see change is that people who do go to the authorities are no longer vilified. And instead they're sort of, you know, celebrated or at least seen as someone who did the right thing right now. I feel like if you speak out against a group, you're very vilified and, and everyone questions you. Um, but yeah, it was, it's so hard. And, you know, I didn't go to any authorities at first. I just left the team and I just kept quiet and I didn't, you know, I made up a reason why I had left the team and I just moved on, you know, and then it really started to eat at me, but I didn't know where to go. Again, I, there was nowhere for me to go at my, where I was being sponsored because this, my coach was connected to everyone all the way to the CEO of the brand I was running for. And I didn't know if I could trust USADA, right? I just didn't know. I was like, well, I don't know. Does Nike have power over them? And in the end, I did go to USADA and they were definitely not bought out by Nike, but I didn't know. And I had, I didn't know anyone who could tell me what to do. And it was really, it was very challenging and difficult to, to do, to make that leap to go in and tell the authorities. Did you feel that it was putting your career on the line when you did decide to go to USADA and that potentially this could be either that you get blackballed by companies or that USADA helps sweep it under the table? Was that a, a major concern for you? Yeah, well, I was afraid that maybe USADA would tell Nike I went in there and then I would lose my contract and then I would be blackballed from races and I wouldn't get to finish off my career. Um, they they with, uh, upheld their end of the deal. They said, if you don't tell, no one's going to know that you were in here. I ended up telling the whole world in 2015. And that's when I started to see the repercussions. That's when I started to have difficulty getting into races and getting threats from people in the industry. Um, but going into USADA, I just want to be crystal clear to anyone listening, going to USADA, none of that happened. No one would have known if I hadn't gone public. Now, thank you for clarifying that. I think it, hopefully people are listening to this where it's happening to them, especially professional athletes, that they won't be afraid to speak out. But it, it's obviously a very difficult thing with those power dynamics. So how much of a responsibility do you think there should be for coaches and um, the whole support team, especially if they're encouraging unethical and wrong behavior? Should they be getting the same kind of bans as um, as athletes? And do you think again, that the concept of... Uh, lifetime bans is maybe even more important there because of the fact that they have all the power. Absolutely. I definitely, in my opinion, believe that coaches, agents, doctors should be held accountable. We've seen this in other groups where one athlete gets caught, you know, six months later, another athlete get caught a year later, two more athletes get caught. And yet the structure is still the same. It's still the same coaches and agents. And, the, and it's like, well, the athletes aren't just magically coming up with this program, right? We have to hold everyone accountable because otherwise the system doesn't change at all. And so that was one of the things that was so amazing about the Salazar case and the doc and the Dr. Brown case this fall was that both Salazar and Dr. Brown were given four-year bans. Now, what's unique about that is that no athletes were given bans, um, which is not necessarily good, but they're appealing the decision. So you saw they really can't move forward with anything else right now anyway. Um, but I think it sends a really strong message that 
the coach, if the coach is involved, the coach has to go too. Why is the coach getting off? Why are the doctors getting off? They're the ones that are giving, not always, but many times they're the ones that are supplying the athletes and pressuring the athletes to do these things that are against the rules. So why do they just get to walk away when the athlete loses their livelihood? That doesn't make any sense. And again, it speaks to the risk and reward balance there that there's maybe a tiny risk of getting caught and it seems even a smaller risk of getting any kind of punishment if you're a coach or or an agent compared to the athlete. But if the difference is that for several years you get to be a little bit better and maybe that gives you a gold medal, maybe that gets you to the point where you can get a lot of sponsorship, a lot of prize money, a lot of appearance fees, Those that money is never taken back. So um, you've got that gain forever. Plus, um, it also doesn't speak to the additional belief you'll get in yourself as well, that let's say you, you got a medal and that allows you then to train full time. That makes you think you're the world's best. It gives you all these positive improvements that just can't be undone. And it might then mean that you actually become a better athlete as a result, even if you're no longer doping. So there's all these long-term elements to it there that are, are super important. And I think that that's it's really important for people to realize that this isn't just a, um, if someone gets caught, you slap them on the wrist and they improve their behavior, that the culture around the entire sport is so vital so that there's enough of a punishment and enough of a chance of that punishment happening that it discourages people doing it. But even more importantly, that people don't want to do it in the first place because they think it's wrong, that it's very clearly wrong to cheat uh, and that they're not going to be able to find little excuses like maybe I can uh, just level a playing field. My coach says it's fine. He says they all do it or it's what will take me to the next level and then I'll stop doping after that. There's a million excuses you can have if the culture isn't right. And do you think that culture has improved um, within uh, athletics and track and field? Um, I, by the way, I just love everything you just said. I'm like nodding along. Yes, yes, yes. Um, (laughs) I don't, I think it's improved a little bit. I do. I think, you know, I think when I, even five years ago, um, when I spoke out, it was terrible and there was like so many consequences for myself. And I feel like we're getting to a point where we're seeing, athletes not be afraid to use their voices not uh, as much. You know, we see Emma Coburn and Jenny Simpson and Aisha Lear like using their voice at the championships to speak out against doping in their events and in their sport. And I don't think we, we, we didn't really see that before because if you did, you were labeled as a whiner or you're just not good enough or you're jealous, you know? So I think we are seeing a shift. I still just think we have such a long way to go. And do you think there's probably sexist and racist elements in that to the degree that, say, uh, a woman saying something, it might be, oh, you're whining, you're complaining, a man might be seen as being strong. Or with African athletes, for example, coming from a poor background in a village and maybe not having as much um, self-confidence as growing up in the West where we're taught how awesome we are every day of our lives. Do you think that that probably also plays into it, that it's even harder for African athletes, for black athletes, for women to speak up even more so than men? Or do you think there's not as much of a difference there? Yeah, I think, I mean, when we start start to really talk about culture, I think understanding why someone dopes is very different depending on where you're from, right? Someone from Mm -hmm. um, Africa, it might get their entire family out of poverty, And so understanding that, and then again, I'm not excusing it, but understanding that. And then how do we, knowing that, make sure that athletes, this isn't the reason why they choose to do this, right? So I think, I don't know, I think it's very, very complicated. I do think, you know, when you speak out, 
you face criticism. And I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to think as you ask me that, I think about myself and Steve Magnus speaking out and, you know, he definitely got backlash, no doubt about it. But it wasn't the like weird comments. Like I got a lot of, you're not pretty anymore or you're irrelevant. That's the pure or, sexism coming through there. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like obvious that like this has to do with me being a woman, right? Like you're not going to tell Steve you used to be pretty and you're not pretty anymore and you're just jealous, you know? So I think there are some elements of that, but I think, you know, I'm trying to think, but it seems like it's been a lot of women that have been the voice for clean sport. It's, it's, it seems like it's easier for me to think of women that have spoken out than men. I agree. It's mainly women that I think of, uh, especially in recent years. So I wonder why that is. Um, presumably it is at least as prevalent within the men's side of things, but it may just be um, to some degree that men's position in the sport, as with any sport, really is more dominant anyway. So they don't want to rock the boat there. Um, there there's maybe more for them to lose. Um, and so they're, they're less likely to speak out, but that's just yeah. speculation there. Um so are you optimistic for the future that the culture is improving, particularly the last couple of years? It seems there's been a lot more coming out and hopefully some progress resulting from that. So do you feel good about where things are heading? I do. I mean, I feel like it's a long road and I feel like it's you can never sleep on it. You know, there's there's thousands of athletes cheating right now. Um, but I do feel like we're starting to see a shift. I think for me, Lily King, when she raised her finger in the in the Rio Olympics at the athlete who was there swimming after serving a ban. I think that four years earlier, she would have been labeled, you know, disrespectful and that's not Olympian like, um, and instead she was sort of embraced as like, wait a minute, why is that woman in here? She's had, you know, she's tested positive twice. Why is she competing in the Olympics? You know? So I do think we are seeing a shift, but again, it's sort of just like, we have to keep talking about it and keeping the pressure on because, we want it even better, way better, you know, than it is right now. And we want people, one of the biggest things I think moving forward is because as we discussed earlier, people are able to avoid testing or not test positive because they've learned how to microdose or whatever it might be. One of the big things moving forward is we need athletes who have witnessed things to come forward and to be able to come to the authorities and not be labeled a snitch or jealous. Um, we need to make it a place where they're like, I know what I saw, it wasn't right, and I'm going to call it in, and I'm going to talk to someone. So I think that's another part of the shift that needs to happen, where we embrace people to 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 say, to say what they saw. And right now, I don't feel like the culture is like that yet. I feel like at this point, you're still sort of like a snitch if you rat out you know, your former teammates or a group you trained with. So I think that's another part of the, a piece of the puzzle that we still have to change. Agreed. Definitely. So I think that there's hopefully improvements in recent years and looking ahead. Nothing's perfect. And I think it would be a, uh, a, a stupid thing to say that the next Olympics will be clean. There'll clearly be lots of issues there and medals that are given to people years afterwards. But uh, hopefully at least there's a shift in the right direction. And speaking of the Olympics, I wanted to talk on some more positive stuff as well, because obviously anti-doping is not um, the best subject to get people psyched up on their runs. But <laughs> <laughs> this is an Olympic year, even though Tokyo has been postponed to 2021. So um, given you've been to two Olympics, um, firstly, how important are the Olympics for runners? 
Oh, I mean, the Olympics are so, it's so important, right? I mean, we run every day of the year, we race all year round, but really the world pays attention every four years. So for, you know, athletics, it's so important that the Olympics take place and that you get that screen time and that you have that opportunity. And let's just be honest, like, that's what we all dream about is running in the Olympics. So we, we're not little saying someday I want to run in the diamond league. You know, we're little being like, I want to run in the Olympics. So it's really, really important that we have the race, those races and that event. And um, I'm really hopeful that it will take place next year. And what's it like in those months before? So you know you've got on the team. So whether it is you've done well enough in the marathon Olympic trials earlier in the year or you're at the track and field Olympic trials, usually about a month or two before the Olympics. Once you're on the team, what is it the mindset like from there? Is it kind of relief and excitement and it's just the best thing ever and nothing else is on your mind at all? Or how is it? How's the build up typically? Yeah, well, I mean, I've I've only been there twice. The first time I definitely got overwhelmed. You know, I made the team. I was so happy to make the team. I had hoped to make it in two events and I did the 5,000 and the 10,000. But then it becomes six weeks of super intense media. And, you know, I had was coming off of winning a medal at the World Championships the year before. And I just wasn't really equipped to, I just had never been in a position with so much attention, you know, like leading it. I remember the mayor from my hometown was like, oh my God, you're in Rolling Stone. I was like, what? You know, just, it was so much. And so I really faltered at my first Olympic games. Um, I just felt really overwhelmed and all of the things that had brought me success in the past kind of went out the window because I was so overwhelmed by all the media. I mean, like my mom and my husband were mic'd up during my race. It was just it was just too much, you know, the, the stadium held more people than are in my hometown. So I went back the second time, the second time I was fortunate to make the marathon team, which I made in January. So I had months to like recover and enjoy the fact that I was going back. And I had a very different mindset, which was, I'm going to run the best race I can, but I'm also going to really appreciate being here because this is the Olympics. And I don't want to look back. Like I look back at Beijing with like, oh, this kind of pang in my throat of like, oh, I really let my nerves get the best of me. I want to look back and be like, I executed the best race I can could, and I enjoyed it. So I definitely enjoyed London more than I enjoyed Beijing, but I think it was just maturity as an athlete. And is it as exciting as I would imagine it is? Are you able to take that in at the moment, or are you just thinking about performance and stress, and and it's difficult to actually enjoy it while you're there? You know, I, I think it's both ways. You know, the athletes that are really dialed in can enjoy it, but they're also really, it's just another race, right? It's the same people you race all the time and you're just trying to keep it in that space. Um, the first time I went, I went to opening ceremonies, which is something that I'd always wanted to do. Um, I got to see the torch lit in front of my eyes. It was so exciting, but I think some of that, it became so much bigger than just a race on the track, which is what I was prepared for. It was just a race on the track that I've done a million times that the same competitors I race against every time I line up and it became too big. So again, I think athletes that are dialed in can say, okay, yeah, this is big and I'm going to enjoy it. But they remind themselves that they're there to do something they've done so many times and to execute. And I feel like that's what I did my second time around. But the first time I definitely got overwhelmed by, all of the hoopla and excitement and um, yeah, just everything about being at the Olympics. And so how does it affect things this year that there's not an Olympics, um, given that it is such a money earner for 
um, and for getting sponsorship for the athletes. How would that have affected you if, let's say, you'd qualified in, in February at the trials and you were doing the marathon and then you're preparing and then you have to stop preparing, you've got to think a year later, both mentally and financially and everything else, how would that affect the athletes at the moment? It is a huge challenge. Um, not everyone, but a lot of athletes' um, contracts are up after the Olympics. So now they're in this sort of weird position of like, I didn't get to prove that I was really fit this year. Um, also, a lot of companies are obviously struggling financially because of the COVID crisis. So it's a lot on the athletes right now. And it's hard to know. I mean, I see some athletes that are training super hard. I see some athletes that are trying to sort of take a break mentally. You can't go. The thing is that the Olympics are every four years and it really is a four year buildup. And you know, every day, this countdown to this clock. Um, but the thing is, you can't do that for five years. It's just physically and emotionally impossible. So the athletes right now are having this difficult time of, you know, toning down the intensity, but still staying fit, but still staying focused, but also knowing that they have to do things maybe they normally wouldn't do to stay relevant because their contracts might be up. I mean, it's really hard on the athletes. And I know at the beginning, athletes were complaining and people were like, hey, people are dying. And that is true, but this is their livelihood and your opportunities at the highest level are so limited. And so I really, really do feel for the athletes right now. It's gotta be just very, very stressful and a difficult time to manage everything. And, you know, the athletes that really emotionally can separate the emotion from just the reality are the athletes that are probably going to do the best, but I do not envy any of them. It must be really hard. And do you think that'll have a knock-on effect as well, that those that same kind of mental toughness pays off for the 2024 Olympics as well, given it'll only be a three-year build-up? Yeah, I mean, that will be very interesting. And also in track and field, we have an off year usually. Um, we have an off year and we won't. they won't have one this year. So, they're, so typically it goes Olympics 2020, World Championships 2021. 2022 is an off year where you can kind of change up your training, try some new things. There's no championship that year. 2023 is World Champs, and then 2024, you're back to the Olympics. Well, now they've pushed the Olympics to 2021. They pushed the World Championships from 2021 to 2022. And then there's already World Championships 2023. So I just feel like 2024 is going to be really interesting. I feel like athletes are going to be so kind of burnt out. And so again, it's going to have, it's going to be managing the expectation early on, really focusing on what's important. Like, do I really care so much about world champs in 2022? Or am I really focused on getting back to the Olympics in 2024? Um, it's going to become difficult and we're going to see athletes rise to the top who are really able to kind of emotionally detach and really think about things in a very clear mindset um, I think they're going to be the ones that do the best rather than the ones that feel stressed, which is understandable, and are trying to pack it all in. I feel like they will suffer. Certainly, yeah. And, and, and do you think that there'll be other people who, because this is extra year to train, that will potentially shift their thinking about um, not just how they train, but also potentially even doping. Um, I'd imagine because there are fewer meets where people could get tested, but they'll still be out of competition testing this year. Do you think that that will um, change much? Uh, and Or that maybe a lot of people who might have been doping might just stop for this year, so there's less chance of being caught because they don't need to be peaking just yet? I think this, is, this has been a nightmare situation for clean athletes because... 
I mean, many federations just announced they wouldn't be testing, right? Um, they just announced it. Like with COVID going on, it is not safe. We will not be testing athletes. And so that sort of is like a free reign for some athletes to mm. dope, get in some training that they wouldn't physi- physiologically be able to do. Um, and so I think this has been sort of a nightmare for clean athletes. So that's at least what I hear from athletes is, you so know. the opposite of what I was saying, but that makes perfect sense. Is, is <laughs> yeah. testing. Rather than having a break yeah. from it, you say, okay, let's get as fit as possible and no one's going to catch me. Exactly. And we know that we know from research and science that doping stays in your system, right? You get gains that stay in your system. So I I don't know what it's going to look like. I know that USADA has been trying to do virtual testing. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I think I just, I hear from a lot of clean athletes that this is sort of like a nightmare situation for them as far as what are, what kind of a field are they going to face next year? But we'll just have to wait and see. And will you personally go to the Olympics to watch it, assuming that it's safe to travel uh, for next year? And do you think you'd always want to be there physically now that it's uh, something that you've been to and competed at? Or are you happy to just say, I'm, I'm no longer physically doing it myself, so I'll just watch it on TV? Yeah, you know, in 2016, I would never consider going. You know, I had hoped to be there. I had hoped to be on my third and final Olympic team. And of course, the top three make it and I finished fourth in our marathon trials. And so I was like, I'm not even going to watch it. I just wasn't there. In a, in a, I wasn't in an emotional space yet or a mental space yet where I could enjoy the, the sport. You know, I just wanted to be competing so badly myself that I couldn't watch it without crying or wondering what I would have done. Fast forward four years, I'm in a totally different space. You know, if you would have told me four years ago I was going to go to the Olympic marathon trials and cheer my head off and lose my voice and have so much fun, four years ago I would have said, there's no way I'm not going. If I'm not making the team, I'm not going to watching, you know. Um, So, yes, this is a really long way of saying I could see myself going to the Olympic Games and cheering. And I don't know if it'll be next year, although I would love to because I, I think you know, I'm close friends with Emma Coburn and Jenny Simpson. I would love to see them race live. But I do think now it's something that I, my husband and I would want to take our son to. My husband is an Olympian as well. Whereas four or five years ago, we weren't there mentally yet. But we're, we're there now. We're fans and we, we love the Olympics and we would love to watch it in person. So do you feel more at peace with everything to do with the sport now? Because you're not in the middle of being part of the Nike Oregon project or all the furore around that. And, and also you're not having to just train and try and beat your absolute peak. So do you feel like you're in a pretty good spot now that you can, to some degree, maybe just enjoy your relationship with running rather than thinking of it as a job? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, 2016, I didn't make the Olympic team and that led to two years of, you know, really mental distress of trying to prove that I still belonged and trying to prove that I could make the team and trying and beating myself up. And then two years ago, I turned 40. And I was like, I'm a master's athlete now. And master's athletes, yeah, sometimes they make the Olympic team, we saw Abdi do it, but typically they don't, you know, and I sort of had a decision, am I going to never race again, because I'm only I only define success by being the best? Or am, am I going to accept that I am where I am now. And I still love to race and prepare and run. And just that's enough. And that's the, I chose the latter path. And 
my running now, it's so fulfilling. And, and, and I'm able to appreciate competition of others so much more now than when I was trying to be the best. I can watch races and get enjoyment from it rather than like worrying about like, well, what, what training are they doing? Should I be doing that? You know? So I'm at just a totally different place in my life um, in regards to running. And just what you said, the pressure is off and I run for me and it's, but I feel really lucky that I still get to do it. And that segues perfectly into the last area I just wanted to quickly discuss, which is that this podcast is the endurance podcast. So it's focused on marathoning, ultra marathoning in particular. So you have now dabbled a bit on the trails. I know you've done the Leadville Trail Marathon at high altitude. You've done the 50K uh, race of 31 miles at uh, the North Face race in San Francisco. So how did you find the environment there and the pressures? And, and what was that like for you, both those races? You know, Leadville, I was coming from the roads and I, my expectation was totally different than reality. My expectation was that everybody was going to judge me harshly and I needed to come in and prove myself and I needed to, I don't know. I just, I thought people were going to judge me. I, I had not the best experience at the Mm -hmm. ultra marathon. In fact, it was one of the worst experiences of my life actually, but the community was nothing like what I thought. Um, I almost didn't go to the award ceremony because I was embarrassed. And I thought, you know, like at a road racing thing, people would be like letting me have it, letting me know that I messed up and that I thought it was better than I was. And I, but I ended up going and people were just so wonderful and nurturing and excited that I was there. And I have found the community to be, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the running community, whether it's the track, roads, trails, ultra, but I have found this sort of trail ultra community to be really um, welcoming and really not concerned. I mean, yeah, they're impressed by people that run fast and do cool things, but really it's more about being in this cool club of people that care about each other and just want to see each other experience these things. And that was my experience again at the North Face 50K. It was, it was so fun and I definitely had taken down my own level of expectation. I wasn't worried about trying to win or anything. I just was like, I just want to finish this. But I had the best time. And as people passed me or if I was at an aid station, it was so, I don't know, like encouraging and jovial and people were so great. And so I have found the whole culture and community around um, ultras and trails to be just awesome. And I know we talked briefly ahead of you doing that North Face race, and you were saying that you were worried in particular about anything more technical, so the more rocky and rugged parts of it. So have you both improved your ability to run on that type of terrain, and and is it less intimidating now? You know, no, (laughs) I'm not better (laughs) at it. But I also have just stopped trying to – like I went out this this past Saturday, actually, and ran on something pretty rocky, and – a year ago, I was still trying to like keep up with others. And now I've gotten to a point where like, if I need to walk and hike through this section, I'm just going to do that. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not really good. People have to remember, like I grew up on the track, you know, and then I went to the roads and I do have a bad knee. I, I need a knee replacement, but I keep pushing it off. I'm hoping to push it off for another 15 years. Um, so the really technical stuff is difficult for me because my knee swells um, when it's unstable and the longer I'm on my knee, which is why I tried to race in a in a just sort of like a 
little compression brace at both Leadville and North Face, although now I think I probably wouldn't do that. But anyway, because it restricts my motion. But anyway, I'm not that great at it. But that's the thing is that it's okay. You know, like you can still get out there and see sites you would never see and do things. And maybe, maybe you're success is no longer how fast you run this course. And maybe it's just the fact that you went and did something that was scary and challenging for you and you went and conquered it. And that's sort of where I am with it. I definitely want to do another ultra. Um, I, I'm not so when I first started, I thought, well, maybe I'll be good at this. And I'm kind of like, this is not why I was put on earth. (laughs) This is not the thing that God gifted me with, but that's okay. I still really, really like it. And you know, the sense of accomplishment is unbelievable. I have to say that race in Leadville, I've run on two two Olympic teams and majors and so many races. And that was the most accomplished I have felt in myself was finishing that. And it's like the only medal I have hanging up in my house is from Leadville because it took so much from me to finish that. And that's super empowering. And that has nothing to do with how good you are, or how fast you went. I think something you said there, I've, I've heard a lot of professional athletes in different sports say, um, which is basically that the thing I can do, that's not hard. The thing everyone else does is hard. So I've spoken to a load of other endurance athletes and, and snowboarders and things like that. And I say, how do you do all those flips and that amazing stuff? And they go, oh, that's not difficult. That's just what all of my friends can do. But you running, that's really hard. How do you run for more than five minutes? And I think it's the same kind of thing you're saying there with um, you're a road runner. And so you look at the trails as being super hard, while the trail runner would look at the speeds you went out on the roads as being hard because it's a thing they can't do. So what would you say to someone who is maybe more of a road runner, let's say they're a, a marathoner, half marathoner, and they've never really run on the trails? Would you encourage them to do that firstly? And um, what will they get out of that? Oh, I would definitely encourage you. I mean, I, mean, I do want to say like, I respect trail athletes so much. It is a different sport but it is so hard. And I just want to say that I can't do it. (laughs) I can't do it. It doesn't matter how hard I worked. I would never be able to be good at that. And I just want to admit that and put that out there. And then I would say, um, yes, you definitely should do it. You need to release expectation of what pace your mileage is or how long it's going to take you to do a 15 mile loop or all those sort of expectations you have to just let go of. But there is something so freeing in that. And I have to say, like, it is terrifying for me. I mean, when I first started running, I ran with Kat Bradley and I ran with a few of my son's dads or friends' dads, and I would be holding back tears. That's how scared I was. Um, but it it has made me, like, feel, I don't know, like I'm so much stronger than I think and that I can conquer these fears. And I just love it. And so I would say, yes, please go out. You don't have to go on your first run and dangle off a cliff and be in some crazy mountain. You know, start small. Start with what feels comfortable to you. But I would totally encourage it because it is different. And the the feelings you get and the connection to nature and the connection to yourself when you're not valuing yourself by watch data, when you're valuing yourself on your connection to the ground, it's, it's like... It's really hard to describe, but I would say, please go try all roadrunners. You need to try it. It will change your life. It really will. 
And just to put something in perspective there, with the engine that you have, trust me, there are huge gains if you wanted to, to, to be really good at it. And an example of this is um, Magda Boulay. So similar background to you, <clears throat> being a, a marathon Olympian for the US and doing track and field, uh, shorter distance, 5,000, 10,000 as well. And it took her a little bit of time to get more used to the trails. And I definitely noticed that her downhills um, were way more cautious than her level of physical ability I would have expected. And that's improved, obviously, over time. But I'd say um, that's something where there's just big gains to be made, where the more you run on trails, and, and you live in Boulder, don't you? Yes, yeah. So living in Boulder, you've got trails all around you, mountains all around you. That's a place where there's so much fun to be had. And you've already seen some of that. I think there's a, a lot more that you'll just naturally see improving over just casually running on that over the coming years. So um, you did mention at the beginning of this that you're maybe thinking of doing a 50 miler at some point. So do you have uh, a particular race that you'd want to do? Would it be the Leadville 50, for example? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I don't know. So I, I mean, I love Leadville so much and I would like to go back and not, and not just be so miserable and enjoy the experience more. So that's definitely in the back of my mind, but I was thinking more like the half marathon. Um, I don't they know. Also have for a 10K sure. there too. You can do the 10K and you'd yes. be awesome about it. It's just a gentle downhill <laughs> and a gentle uphill. Okay. That's now we're talking for sure. Yeah. So this is the fun thing is that there's so many options. And I've talked to you about this, but like a lot of people have told me to look into the JFK 50 miler, which I am very interested in, but like there, you can run it in a mountain, you can run it on the road, you can run it on trail. And that's the thing that has blown my mind, sort of like dipping my toe into this world is that the opportunities are kind of endless. There's so many opportunities and so many different ways to do stuff. I think with the 50 miler, I wouldn't want it to all be on roads, but I don't think I want it to be all above 10,000 feet either. <laughs> Well, I think that's the beauty of our sport and, and the sport I'm calling here is, is running of every type, whether it's sprinting, whether it's running up mountains, whatever it is, there's jungles, deserts, uh, the Arctic, there's so many different things that there's a core skill set, but uh, totally different experiences. And I think that's one of the best things about it. And also, once you have that fitness to be a strong marathoner, to be able to complete ultras, you can do things that normal people wouldn't do, such as running across the Grand Canyon and back. So rather than doing several days of backpacking and getting camping permits, you just start in the morning, run 20 miles, run 20 miles back and it's a 40 mile training day um, I think that's one of the things that I definitely encourage people to think of as a perk of doing this kind of training but uh, hopefully as well yourself you'll, you'll get more into uh, some adventures like that there's some amazing mountain loops that take probably longer than the 50k that you that you've done in the past to do um, but good luck with all of that and, and I think that the last thing I just want to end on was is that Anything else you'd like to add, either on the anti-doping side or about trails or the Olympics or anything else? Um, no, not really. Just again, just again to my fellow roadrunners, don't be afraid to try something different. And don't be afraid if someone offers to take you on a trail to go because it's the most welcoming community. And it'll just open up your eyes to so many more opportunities you didn't even know existed in running. Well, thank you so much for your time, Cara, and particularly for being such an advocate for positive change in the sport. And uh, hopefully I'll get to see you in person again sometime soon. Thank you. Great, thanks. Thanks. 
You can follow Cara on Twitter or Instagram at, at CaraGoucher. Plus, her website is caragoucher.com. Plus, you can contact me, Ian Sharman, at sharmanultra.com. And also let me know if there are particular topics or guests you'd be interested in. There's a contact page on my website. Uh, we have contact details for myself and Cara on the show notes for this podcast. And please rate the podcast if you have time. It's great to be able to get this out to more people and to get higher up in the rankings. Uh, and also check out podiumrun.com for articles for runners of all levels, including the occasional one by myself. Thank you and goodbye.